and developing uh, these folks as they are going out into different parts of our country and starting new churches. Now, more importantly, he's married to Jan. Yeah, I was dean of students at Covenant Seminary. That's what took us to St. Louis from Atlanta in 1995. And I do know Richard. If you want to really know the true Richard, talk to me afterward. No, there won't be time for all of you. No, I'm... Richard has been great, and Sarah and your kids, it's been good to follow you through the years. And I want, on behalf of just Jan and me, I want, we want to thank you all for the love and support and friendship that you continue to give Chris and Josephine. They're home from London, for a while at least, finishing his PhD in intercultural studies at Trinity Seminary in Chicago. He still oversees the church planning in the United Kingdom, England particularly, but all of the UK, and he is the mission specialist now for cultural, for culture and contextualization across the whole mission. So it's a huge job, and he would value your continued support and prayer. Uh, and it really is good to be here. I, I, I can't remember. We're we're getting old now. I think I've been here before. Not maybe not to preach, but to meet with leaders or something. Some of you remember. Anyway. anyway uh, it's good to be back if I, if I have been. <laughs> Don't laugh. Your day will come too. <laughs> It'll come. Uh, I want to take a little informal poll. How many of you still have a phone with a landline? One, two, three, four. Isn't that interesting? I wonder how many of your grandkids have ever seen one of those phones uh, other than in the office. In an office connected to the cord in the wall. That's pretty rare, isn't it? Landline phones connected to, I mean, cell phone is the thing now. Uh, landline phones are anachronistic. And I wonder sometimes if the same isn't true of cable TV. Now, Jan and I just haven't, not quite, we can't get into streaming yet. We have to have the grandkids come over and show us how to do the, TV, the, the Roku TV. It's crazy. We still love the channels of cable and probably paying more than we should. But um, uh, streaming is everything. Will cable persist or will it be, will cable go the way of cell phones? I don't know. You know who one of the most influential persons in America who ever got cable TV and 24-hour news going? You know, you know who it was? If you're old like me, you'll remember Ted Turner. Remember Ted Turner? So-called the mouth of the South. He started CNN and the whole cable thing. Um, it proved to be a really great deal. I, I once read him quoted. He said, I was the world's greatest yachtsman. I think he won the America's Cup. I'm close to being the world's greatest businessman. I'm close to being the world's greatest environmentalist. I think at one point, he, maybe still, he owned the world's largest number of bison out, in, out in, in the West. His goal, here's Ted Turner's goal. I'm trying to set the all-time record for achievement by one person in one lifetime. That puts you in pretty big company. Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Gandhi, Christ, Muhammad, Buddha, Washington, Roosevelt, and Churchill. One friend says, <coughs> Ted is the great I am. I pray better things of Mr. Turner now in his old age, but I wonder if sometimes I, we, don't actually long to be successful in our own arena, 
like he did or does in his. It could be the arena of student <clears throat> or teacher or successful dad measured by my kids or the kid that other kids at school think is so neat and cool and really like or financially secure or model mom or M&A staffer or the arena of always being right or successful engineer or worker of whatever, whatever sort. Our arena may vary, but I, I wonder, I keep thinking inside me there's this troubling tendency to cloak with humility language a powerful drive to succeed, to be impressive, to be great in my, even my little arena. Is that wrong? To want to be great? Not necessarily, but you sense the tension I do? Something, there's something legitimate about wanting to succeed. But there are huge challenges, aren't there? In the, just in the nature of the case, dangerous. Do you really want to be great? What is true greatness, according to Jesus? We see in the passage that we'll read three kinds of people, three principles, and three incredible things that Jesus does for us that, that can lead to gratitude. And the bulletin calls for a prayer of response at the end. <clears throat> and this may be a little, it's a little unusual, a little unusual for me. At the end of those three points, I'm going to have a brief prayer of thanksgiving. So don't think the end of the service has come when you think it may have come. So let's look together at Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 43. This comes right on the heels of the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus and three of his disciples were. They come down from the Mount, <coughs> and Jesus heals a son of a man who had the, the son had an unclean spirit, and he heals the boy, and then, then verse 43, and, as G, and all the people see that, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, <coughs> Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. You know what that means. He's headed to the cross. But they didn't understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid, afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a little child, put him by his side, and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who's great. John answered. See, John's going to be defensive now. Watch. John answered him. Well, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. Not in the PCA. But Jesus said to him, don't stop him, for the one who's not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people didn't receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <clears throat> but he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. 
What is greatness according to Jesus? Here and in several other places, the, argue, the, the, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. In the nature of the case, it seems to me one, and I think biblically too, one big, big piece of the nature of, of greatness is it's how I, how I function in comparison with other people. It's great compared to whom? That's why the disciples were arguing among themselves. Greatness has to do with relationships with people. And what is Jesus' view of greatness? You saw it there, didn't you? Did you hear what he said? Here's the deal. It's backwards from most of our thinking. Greatness is being last. It's being least. It's being small. It's the lowly place, the way of humiliation. It's, it's the way of the lowly with other people. And that smacks us right in the face, doesn't it? That's, that's foreign to the way my heart, especially the way our, heart, our, our, cultural, our culture calls us. How does a really great person function <coughs> with other people? Well, how did Jesus function with you? <coughs> Look at three kinds of people Jesus deals with here. <coughs> First, verse 48, <coughs> Jesus had a little child stand beside him, almost as if an equal. I think that's Jesus' point. Who what was a child like in the first century there <coughs> in, in, in uh, Jesus' day? You know the others who didn't matter much to the folks at Old First Church in Jerusalem? Gentiles, common people, sinners, riffraff, uh, tax collectors, prostitutes, and kids. <coughs> Remember what, the, when the, what happened when the parents brought their kids for Jesus to bless? And what did these adult disciples say? Go on, shoo them, shoo them away. No, no, no. They don't matter. It's us adults that matter. Jesus valued people that don't matter. They're, lives, they're those whose lives we touch that just don't matter. And Jesus said, when you value them, you're valuing me. Who doesn't matter? Who, who are the ones that don't matter in your life? I got a call from Bob, a member of the small group that met in our home. Hey, Jim, I invited Joe Smith <coughs> to come to our group this Wednesday night. Bob can't see the wince in my face, the groan in my spirit. Not him. Oh, not, not, not. Joe Smith. You'll mess up the group. Joe is, Joe is just, just weird. Socially inept, intrusive, this kind of church tramp, dependent, needy, noisy. And then it hit me. <clears throat> I wasn't welcoming this little child. It was a status thing. I was too good for him. He was below me. There's a greatness in that status of someone that doesn't matter, and I'm above him or her. You see that? It happens all the time. It happens in our brains and our minds, but it always bubbles out into behaviors. Remember the broader setting of this, this, this greatness debate 
in Luke 9, but that the, the disciples had. It seems like in the New Testament, every time the disciples argue about greatness, what can you expect to see sandwiched in or around those debates? A discussion by Jesus about his death. It's amazing. You can look back and trace it. Here their greatness argument follows Jesus healing the spirit-possessed boy, and while everyone was amazed, verse 43 says, the greatness or the majesty of God, and marveling at what Jesus did, Jesus said, in effect, in verse 44, they think this is greatness? Listen carefully. Let this sink into your ears. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to go into the cross. Then comes the disciples' greatness debate. The cross. So as I thought of poor Joe, <clears throat> I was also struck by Jesus' utter humiliation. That was Jesus' greatness. But it was for me. I was the single lost sheep that didn't matter to anyone else, but it mattered to him. He left the 99 for me. I was the nobody that he died on the cross for. Me, me of all. How could Jesus die for me? I know what I'm really like. But now, my status, our status, a child of the living God. And I began to see Joe in a little different light. I was still, still often embarrassed by him. But he really began to become a part of our group. Who are the people off your radar? People that really don't matter. Part of our problem is just that. They matter so little we don't even see them. The quiet classmate at school who always sits alone. The immigrant, the refugee, the person of another race whose path we really rarely ever cross. The grocery store clerk that you see regularly but really don't ever see. The neighbor you nod to whom we never engage. The unchurched folk we never really see because of the way we cocoon ourselves as believers. Folks in a different socioeconomic, socioeconomic class. Why are they off our radar? Because we, we prefer, I prefer, we, we prefer to hobnob with the beautiful people, beautiful according to our own standards, that can add to our sense of greatness by riding on their coattails. We prefer the, prefer the beautiful people at church, for example, the people we know, the people we like. So we head to them automatically instead of looking for people we don't know well, or people who are visiting, or people we don't know well, especially those who are nobodies to us. And I can be such a name dropper if it makes me feel a higher status over someone. I can love to find a way to just drop, just drop the name of my brother, Nathan, who recently retired as president of Wake Forest University. I can sort of ride the coattails and, and be somebody by knowing him in your eyes. We all do that. We drop names of people that will give us a better status over the nobodies. The great person knows he's valued by Jesus because of the trip Jesus was making to Jerusalem. So he serves the people that don't matter by valuing them because he matters to Jesus, because you matter to Jesus. Some of you may be wrestling with Christianity and what it's all about and you know yourself. <clears throat> you know your worst self. You know your self-absorption, your determination really to be God in your own life. 
You wonder if there is a God and if Jesus is really God and died on the cross for your crimes against God. If it's true, it's too bad because you're just too messed up. You really are a nobody to him, a real nobody. Remember the greatness of Jesus. He died for people like you. He died for nobodies. He values people that don't count, and a person never, never becomes a Christian until he or she understands how, how messed up she is, how messed up he is, that she doesn't count, that she doesn't matter. That's the person that Jesus came for. Some of you may have been in church all your lives. You know all the answers to the catechism questions even. <clears throat> and if you've never come to a place where you know down deep inside what a mess you really are before God because of your crimes against him, if you've never come to that low place, you may not be a Christian because those are the people Jesus came for. We're all the ones who don't count. And Jesus loves us. How can we not love those around us who don't count? That's the way we've been loved. Who are the folks that just don't matter in your life? Here's one test. Who would you, who would you be embarrassed for your best friends to see you hanging out with or having over for dinner or going out with them? Remember, according to Jesus, when you value them, you're valuing him. I love English mysteries. I read one. Here's one line in, <clears throat> in one that I read. <clears throat> just one line. There was something about Ross that made you feel as if you didn't matter at all. Could people say that about you? Thank God you can't say that about Jesus. You can't say that about Jesus. You matter to him. He died and came for nobodies. Thank him that through his death, he loves nobodies. How do we, how do we respond to that? We thank him, so let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you that your son was somehow disvalued by you so that we could now be your valuable children. We matter to you. Thank you. Now give us that kind of love for those around us who don't matter. Amen. But there's a second kind of person Jesus deals with, uh, the great person. John, verse 49, clearly defensive. Uh, responds to what Jesus has just said. We saw a man casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he wasn't in our tribe. He wasn't in our group. He wasn't following with us. He wasn't in the PCA. Okay, Jesus, John says. If I can't gain status over people that don't matter, I'll gain significance over people I don't agree with, people outside our circles, outside our tribe. They're not following with us. Yeah, see, there's a greatness of that significance. Yeah, he's casting out demons, but he's not really in the know. He's not following with us. He's not the real group, the real groupies of Jesus. So I can feel greater by drawing the circle tighter and tighter around me and those of my tribe or group. So I don't include them with us. They don't really understand our church and where we ought to be headed. We tighten the circle. I don't think they really understand the gospel. We tighten the circle. They don't really understand the Reformed faith like we do. We tighten, tighten the circle tighter. 
He's a Republican. She's a Democrat. Have you seen those kids? You know how they? Public schools, private schools, Christian schools. We tighten the circle, tighten the circle. We've been here from the beginning, and we tighten the circle. It usually happens quietly in our mind, but inevitably it will bubble over into behavior. And our greatness comes through our sense of significance compared to those outside our circle, right? We're better than they are. We're more significant than they are. We can be so critical, gaining significance by looking down on them. And our greatness comes through our sense of significance compared to those outside our tribe, outside our circle of whatever nature that is. Jesus responds to John with a surprisingly broad principle, unsettlingly broad. The great person serves people he disagrees with, people that are outside the circle, by giving them the benefit of the doubt. If he's not against you, he's for you, Jesus said. Draw him into your circle. Give him the benefit of the doubt. Who do we usually give the the benefit of the doubt to? Why? I just had a hard day. Well, you know, that's just my personality. You know, I give myself the benefit of the doubt all day, all the time. Who are we usually the hardest on? Others, not me. Jesus says the great person reverses that. The great person takes the lowly place with the person outside his tribe by giving them the benefit of the doubt, taking them into the circle, cutting them some slack, giving them a break. Uh, Oprah Winfrey and I were born in the same town in Mississippi, Kosciuszko. Anybody been to Kosciuszko? Some of you may know Kosciuszko. You know, Oprah and I weren't friends. I think she was younger than I was. I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I was born with grits in my mouth. Um, And I had an all too typical view as a southerner of black folks. Even though from an early age in South Carolina where I was raised, I never quite understood why Ruby, who helped mom two days a week, couldn't, wouldn't eat with us at the table. It was never even talked about. She was outside our circle. And the Lord grew me, thankfully, past most of much, much of my, most of my, maybe most, much of my bigotry uh, with all the people outside the circle. Uh, I'm still growing. Um, you know who I'm bigoted against now? Bigots. <laughs> you see, it keeps going, Lord, help me. It keeps going. I can still exclude other people who are not in my tribe. In my mind, until I remember, wait, 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 Jim. Why did Jesus make his way to Jerusalem? Where was he headed? Why was the Son of Man betrayed? His humiliation was to bring me into his circle, into his family. Peter says, once you were not a people, now you're the people of God. As one of the songs says, I was his enemy, now I'm at his table. I was the outsider, and he refused to leave me there. I was adopted into his family. The amazing thing that I don't understand, the amazing thing that that happened on the cross is that Jesus drew me, us, into his circle, into his family by being cast out of the Father's circle. Uh, it's, it's, uh, It's mysterious. My God, my God, Jesus said on the cross, why have you abandoned me? Jesus was somehow 
at that moment, somehow, mysteriously, outside the Father's circle, so you could never be outside the Father's circle. If a great person knows she's accepted and serves people she disagrees with who are outside the circle by giving them the benefit of the doubt, she works works to draw, draw them into her circle, into his circle, this is so critical in, our special, in this day, in our church, in our culture, in our neighborhood. One of the greatest pains we can have is feeling or sensing that we don't belong. And you may be right there. You may have felt that you never really fit in anywhere. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, just remember that historic Christianity has always taught that the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus brings us who believe in him, into his family, adopted into his family with a, a relationship close, closer than any other relationship that's imaginable. So be thinking about that. And we in the church can help build vibrant community by continuing to pull people in who are outside our circle, who don't, who don't yet belong. How do we respond to Jesus drawing us into his circle by his death? by being abandoned by the Father. We respond with thanksgiving. So let's do that. Thank you, Jesus. Kind, kind Jesus, that through your death, you drew us in, you drew me in, into your circle by being abandoned by your Father. We don't understand that. We just worship in gratitude. Thank you. There's a third person Jesus prods, prods us about in verse 51. He resolutely sets off for Jerusalem, <clears throat> and the Samaritans jerked the welcome mat. Didn't, they, they had not <laughs> left the light on for Jesus there in the motel in Samaria. They see they're going to Jerusalem, and you know, if you're churched, you know the history of Samaritans and Jews. They hated each other. They had hurt each other for years and years and years. James and John show a clear response in verse 54, like one of the Old Testament prophets. You want us to call fire down? Consume them? In Mark's gospel, Jesus gives those two a nickname. Sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. The zappers. See, they would show their loyalty to Jesus and their proximity to him in greatness by giving those Samaritans what they deserve, giving them, calling fire down, literally giving them hell. They're saying, if I can't gain status over people that don't matter or significance over people outside the circle, I can gain superiority over my enemies with a vengeful spirit. Greatness of superiority. I am better than them. You ever have that feeling? A few of us have out and out sworn enemies. Few of us have folks that we res would resort to say, I want them to go to hell, like James and John would have. <clears throat> we judge much more subtly. Our enemies are often those we just don't like, especially folks who have hurt us. So we exercise our greatness in passive-aggressive behavior, behavior that can malign, undercut, stonewall, damage people without even our taking responsibility for it. We can just ignore them. We can, we can s s hit them with humor, talking about them or rolling our eyes about them. Mainly just maybe ignoring them. Or we can quietly gloat 
like I can when that person suffers, like Jonah did, remember? He preached to Nineveh, and then he went and sat out on the, on the hill, on the mountain, on the hill opposite to watch and just praying, for the, hoping for the day when God was going to zap those Ninevites. When cocky parents have trouble with their kid, I can say, very interesting. <laughs> well, the best student in the class who's too big for his britches makes a C, he was like, busted, yeah. He got his two cents worth. Yeah, I'm, al I'm alarmed at the quiet glee that sometimes I can feel when something bad happens to a pastor who's regularly ranted and raved on social media against a pastor friend of mine. When something bad happens, I can say, yeah. How do you treat those who've hurt you? Even here in the church, bound to have happened. I've been a pastor for a long time. How do you treat them in your mind? What's Jesus' word on greatness here with people who have hurt you? How does the great person deal with enemies of whatever degree? Well, he rebukes his friend, his friends. No condemnation, guys. No fire-breathing destruction. What is greatness? It's compassion. It's withholding judgment. It's the lowly place of simply taking wrong without insisting on vindication or my rights, but dishing out compassion and mercy instead. It's so hard, Jim, because wrong has been done to me. Right. Correct. Until we go back to what was happening here, James and John, where was Jesus headed? Why were you wanting to go through Samaria? Where were you going with Jesus to Jerusalem? The time was, was approaching. It was the cross. And gra greatness would take the lowly place again. And John and James, it was for you, the guilty, that the innocent lamb suffered, yet he opened not his mouth. The pain, James and John, we deserve was turned on him, we got compassion and mercy. And we were his enemies. You've met our son Chris. <clears throat> Did you know that some years ago, from London, they flew, the whole family came back to, to St. Louis, and he donated a, a kidney to his friend Tim, friend in the church. Did you know that? Have you heard about that? And that seat, it was, he came in mid-December, it, it was right at Christmas time, and and everybody said, wow, what a wonderful Christmas gift. What a class act. And Chris kept trying to deflect that adulation by simply saying, hey, that's what a friend does for a friend. You all would have done it too. Christmas morning, when, before we opened the gifts with kids and grandkids, we were talking about gifts and Christmas, and it hit me that Chris's Christmas gift of a kidney to his friend Tim was a gift to a good friend who would have done the same for him. God loved us and gave Jesus to us who shook our collective fist in God's face and said, I want my way, get out of my life. And he died for his enemy. If Tim had killed our daughter-in-law, Josephine, 
And then in prison, him in prison, Chris hears Tim needs a kidney then and gives him a kidney. That's a tiny bit more like what Jesus has done for us. The great person begins to understand that he is the recipient of compassion and mercy and serves his enemies with compassion and mercy like he has been treated. Who's hurt you at school, at work, in the neighborhood, in the family, here at church? In your mind, have you been zapping those suckers? Has it impacted your attitude and actions as you gain significance and greatness by feeling so much better than them you can just ignore them? Who's hurt you that now needs to be treated with intentional mercy and compassion? Initiative taking and mercy and compassion like you've been treated. Thank Jesus who gave his life for you, his enemy, and ask him to give you that kind of love. Some of you are wrestling with Christianity perhaps today. Let me just remind you of one thing. This is the only religion where God himself, Jesus, comes and dies for enemies. He loves you that much. Think about that. Put that in your pipe and smoke. All right. No, not really, but you know what I mean. What do we do in response? Let's pray. Father, and can it be that we should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that you, our God, should die for me? Thank you, thank you. One final thought. As I continue to get to know my dear wife, Jan, and I do keep getting to know her. It's amazing. I keep relearning the best way to love her is not in the abstract. The best way to love her is to discover her interests and her passions and her fears and her goals, what makes her tick. I can't love her in the abstract. I love her by adopting those as mine. I can, I can love her only in terms of what she is, what drives her, what makes her tick. God's the same way. You can't love him in the abstract. What drives God? What's his vision? What does he love? What's on his heart? What is on the Lord's heart? People. People that don't matter. People that are outside your circle. People that have hurt you. Hurt you. Let that gospel soak, soak deep in your hearts. And the more we do the more we'll serve him by serving people like he does. This last, first, this first Sunday of Advent as we've come off Thanksgiving, precious Savior, come again. Come again, Jesus, in this Advent season. And may our Thanksgiving day be turned into Thanksgiving living. We pray, amen.